Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher. And all around swell guy. I thank you, sir. Are we still early enough in the season where we're welcoming our listeners back to a brand new season? We are. We're still trying to welcome our old listeners back, and we're trying to trick new listeners into thinking we're nicer than we are. (laughs) Don't tell. (laughs) Oh, oh, no, no. (laughs) It's a secret. Just you, me, and, oh, I don't know, somewhere around 20,000 people now. Oh, nice. However, there is still a pandemic going on. And we've begun our eighth season by trying to explore some of the beliefs and arguments held by those who are vaccine hesitant. Yeah. And this is going to be some time where we're going to be rational. We're going to kind of just stick with the facts and we're going to examine arguments and try to really come around in a logical way why we as doctors and scientists recommend why we recommend and why that gives everyone the best chance to survive and live and be safe and happy and healthy. So if you know somebody who still has not gotten the vaccine for one reason or another, direct them over this way and maybe you'll both learn something. Yeah. Our first episode dealt with ivermectin and how it came into fashion. This one, I figured let's take a look at something nice and relatively non-controversial. Religion, religious exemptions. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just something we'll keep it copacetic. Yeah. <laughs> very yes, very non-controversial, absolutely. But yeah, yeah, we'll we'll approach it right from a good historical perspective, fact-based perspective, and then take a look at some of the objections that folks have who claim religious exemptions from vaccines, why they feel how they feel, and perhaps some good arguments on how to how to counter that a little bit. So Religious exemptions. Where do they come from? Where do they go? Where do they come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Uh, <laughs> well, and and this is something that you were teaching me, Josh, because we've got vaccine hesitancy since like the beginning of vaccines, right? So Montreal in the late 1800s, when smallpox vaccines were going on, there were riots. 
there were, you know, down with the vaccinators kind of thing. Uh, our very first president, George Washington, actually mandated smallpox inoculation. Um, I think at least for the military, it may have been for all governmental offices. And there were always these kind of objectors coming in and, you know, not really having a lot of facts or anything in that case. But from what you taught me, religious exemption was something a bit different and maybe a little bit more recent. Yeah. I mean, anytime somebody mandates anything, they'll be resistant. Yeah. So while resistance to the mandates goes back something like 200 years, religious objections were not recognized by the law until around the 1960s. Uh, And then Mm. since then, it's obviously grown somewhat in popularity and use. Now, They are, in theory, based on an individual's sincerely held beliefs and Mm -hmm. that for a religious reason, (laughs) they cannot get vaccinated. Of course, knowing whether someone is sincere in their religious belief is impossible. Yeah, that's that's mind reading. (laughs) We're we're just not there yet. Well, let's wait till the next journal club. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But this is this is a lot of what we talk about in legal terms when we say things like intent. You know, how do you prove that the person meant to do it or wants to do it versus if something happened by accident? So this is you, you have to somehow by circumstance or something else from an external view, try to prove what's going on inside of a person's head. With that in mind. For those who are claiming exemptions or objections based on sincere religious beliefs, pretty much all the major leaders of the world's religions are endorsing the idea of getting the vaccine. The Pope made a video telling Catholics that getting the vaccine would be an act of love. Um, A lot of imams have been taping videos of themselves getting vaccinated Mm -hmm. uh, and the Jewish church as well is encouraging it as a act of protection and love for your community. So to be sure public health has been folded into many, many religious traditions and depending on how you view it, Josh found its way into religious practice. Or if you go from the other side where, you know, God or whatever the belief system is, actually had an understanding uh, that, you know, public health is important, keeping clean and then letting people know when you were sick and protecting your neighbors and people around you. Definitely from my standpoint, being a Hindu, it's, it's in there. It's part of our traditions. And I know it is part of the Abrahamic traditions as well, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So how did we get from just general objectors or personally held beliefs to religious exemptions and what do they mean and what do people object to them on the grounds of. So in the early 1900s were when we really began to see the first vaccine mandates by the states. And as you noted, Santosh, that was for smallpox. Uh, And there was a compulsory vaccination law. And like today, there was a lot of public resistance to these kinds of laws with one case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, going all the way to the Supreme Court in 1905. These early objections weren't based on religious grounds. People were arguing that this was an infringement of their 14th Amendment rights. Quick, what's the 14th Amendment? (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) This, this, uh, like, past, like, number five or six, I lose (laughs) really, really quick. Um, Okay, 13th Amendment was abolishing slavery, uh, except in the case of <laughs> if you're in prison, God damn it. Um, the 14th Amendment um, uh, quartering and sequestering of soldiers in your house, that, that would make any sense with vaccines. <laughs> it was uh no 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 it was this is too early to be liquor laws wasn't it <laughs> the important part for yeah. for government purposes is that okay. it granted citizenship <laughs> to all persons born or naturalized in the united states including oh. formerly enslaved and oh, God. okay and more pertinent to our discussion provided all citizens with equal protections under the laws and then there's a Got whole it. bunch of extra legalese that uh, you can look up on your own. But the 
way that they were arguing this in court was that it forced an undue medical procedure on an individual. Oh, so under the 14th Amendment and saying like kind of equal protection under the law. And by the way, every protection under the law that we usually talk about is protection of an individual or a private group from the government. So is that what they were saying? So under this one, the government is overextending their authority in terms of mandating, you know, so as part of that, everyone's equal under the law, no state shall make or enforce any law, which abridges the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States who they defined, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process, nor deny any person within this jurisdiction, nor force them to undergo undue medical procedures. So not understanding the legalese, we've got, you know, how to become a citizen. And then once you're a citizen, doesn't matter who you are, you get equal protection under the law. Basically, people were saying, you know, you cannot force me to get an undue medical procedure, such as a vaccination. This went all the way to Supreme Court. And I'm just going to read the highlights, the important parts the parts I understand. (laughs) Which is, uh, by the way, so what they're doing is they're saying that medical procedures fall under this 14th Amendment because that's not explicitly stated in the 14th Amendment. Here's a couple excerpts from from that case. Uh, The liberty secured by the Constitution of the United States does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint nor is it an element in such liberty that one person or a minority of persons residing in any community and enjoying the benefits of its local government should have power to dominate the majority when supported in their action by the state's authority. Uh, So that's the first part. So you are not always free at all times, even though you have certain basic freedoms. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Absolutely fair. Yeah. And just to make an extreme case, like, you know, you can't, if you have toxic chemicals sitting in your house, you can't just go like and just dump them in the street because, you know, you have nowhere else to put them. So it goes on. It is within the policing power of a state to enact a compulsory vaccination law, and it is for the legislature and not for the courts to determine. Now, this was done in the Massachusetts Supreme Court. So, you know, doesn't this particular case set precedent, but did not apply at the time to every state or the country as a whole? Okay. Um, Okay. So not having held a compulsory vaccination, the law the state establishes the absolute rule that an adult must be vaccinated, even if he is not a fit subject at the time, or that vaccination would seriously injure his health or cause his death. So accepting those to Mm -hmm. an adult residing in the community and a fit subject of vaccination, this is not invalid or in derogation of any of their rights under the 14th Amendment. So basically, this is not forcing an undue medical procedure on you. You are a citizen, a participant in society, which means this is something the state can ask you to do. If it is necessary for right. the public health or safety, shall require and enforce the vaccination and revaccination of all the <laughs> inhabitants thereof and provide them with the means of free vaccination. Right. So... You know, from the government side, they're basically saying, you know, we'll we'll give we'll make sure that you guys have access and that you're able to get, in this case, your shot, your smallpox shot. From the standpoint of the individual responsibility in this case, they're saying that, you know, you live here and you live amongst us. That means that if you're enjoying everything that this society and this government is affording you, then you're going to participate in protecting the community as a whole. And part of that is, you know, going and and receiving your vaccination, which by the way, we're providing for free. So huge, absolutely huge. My favorite part of this, by no means the most important, but easily the one that, you know, made me the most amused Okay. Whoever, being over 21 years of age and not under guardianship, refuses or neglects to comply with such requirements shall Mm -hmm. forfeit $5. Hey! (laughs) Well, and this is back, what, 19... 
No, no, no. This is the 1800s. No, 1905 was this case. 1905. Okay. So I'm not sure what that translates to in modern dollars, but I'm guessing that that's a, like a pretty hefty chunk of money for that it's time. It's 155 bucks. I mean, that's significant. And just given, you know, what the average person makes nowadays and having to pay bills and everything else, like just forking over, you know, a bill and a half is pretty huge. Well, in comparison, uh, states now are starting to implement rules that those who remain unvaccinated can no longer get free COVID tests. And those cost about 25 to 50 a pop, depending on where you get it, what test is being used. So right. I imagine that does quickly add up, but that, that's the equivalent. Right. And that's just, it's one aspect of care. They're not saying you just have to give up 25 bucks. <laughs> that means that if you fall ill, then that protection afforded by the state saying that, oh, you know, we'll provide free testing to make sure, you know, if you get sick that we, we can help you out, that that's taken away. You can't do that anymore. That was pretty much how things stood. Five dollars. Mm -hmm for everyone who refused to get the vaccine. I don't know if, how they enforced, whether it was a one-time fine or a regular fine. I mean, coming with that, Josh, is another controversy in this day and age, is they had to track and show people with like some sort of signed or certified letter that you got your shot. That's how things stood, a fine of $5 as of 1905. And then around the 1910s, you start to see people making an organized claim for religious exemption. Uh, during that time, there were outbreaks of polio and measles, even though vaccines for these diseases did, in fact, exist. So mm -hmm. public health officials were relying, then as now, on basically yep. education, persuasion, good faith arguments to convince parents to get their children vaccinated. And so in 1966, New York Assemblyman Alexander Chanana... Chanana... No. Nana, <laughs> Isn't that really his name? Yeah. C H A N A N A U. Okay. Oh, sure. I. Na -na. I yeah. All right. So very memorable the vaccination name. Vaccination okay. law. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, yeah. That was he. Basically, was the guy who came up with the idea of said kids have to get vaccinated to attend school. So we've had vaccine okay. passports since at least the 1960s. Sure. But his law was met with a huge outcry from, of all people, the Christian scientists community. Okay. And and these are, by the way, I, I have not read anything about Christian science. I, I don't know who these folks are. Okay. Allow me to educate you mm -hmm. with everything I know about Christian scientists. <laughs> okay. Okay. Since the founding of their church 131 years ago, actually 140 yeah, 140 years ago. Okay. Christian scientists have been taught to avoid doctors at all costs. Oh, oh, okay, okay. All That's right. It. So they, they do not go for any reason ever. To to like a, a so-called like Western kind of science-trained, you know, uh, uh, kind of science-based, uh, what we would call maybe a, an MD or a DO type of physician no okay. doctors no way no how not ever for any okay. reason and in fact there have been several criminal cases brought against christian scientist community for you know preventing people from going to the hospital not not in a creepy scientology oh. way but okay. like having say like a kid who has measles and could be helped and people come to get and say hey we can make your kid better. And they'll say, no, like, I don't even care if it can. The only way that we heal this is with prayer and whatever. So like Jehovah's witnesses won't take blood. This is a much more extreme. They won't take any medical care. And so some people say this could be viewed as neglect, abuse. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the same. I, I, I mean, you're endangering the child. So this is the same type of thing that we'd say if, you didn't get your kid to school if you didn't get them an, ed an education 
by and large, we would say a state government or, or a local city government would say that you are causing harm to your child by denying them an education of one way or another. So this is kind of the very first example of a religious exemption because the Christian scientist community is like, no, our entire belief system means like we cannot get vaccinated and we have and we don't even, you know, go to doctors. Like we'd have right. to be breaking so, the we'd have to be breaking our moral beliefs multiple times over to even attempt to comply. Okay, so this isn't just vaccines. This is any kind of either preventative care or treatment from from a physician okay got it got it okay so to appease these vocal dissenters an -hmm. exemption based on religious belief was added to the bill from chananana okay got it which became a blueprint for pretty much vaccine legislation from then almost till now okay gotcha all right uh also, the Civil Rights Act was passed around this time, which meant employers couldn't discriminate based on things like race, gender, and religion, which okay. has been interpreted that if an employee has a sincere religious objection to a workplace rule, okay. i.e. vaccine mandates, the employer okay. should accommodate them unless it's an undue burden. Of course, the counterargument to that would be an undue burden is a contagious disease in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. So, and especially if that worker is, that person is p- placing others at very real risk. Since the 90s, the 1990s, there has been a pretty rapidly and disappointingly growing movement of people hostile to vaccines, initially mm-hmm. galvanized by a paper published by former position Dingus McFraud, uh, Dingus <laughs> McFraudy Pants. Who doesn't get to be named because I just won't oh, do that. Link oh, MM- okay. th- MMR to autism, which is not a thing. No, no, it's it's absolutely not. And, and had pay- the yeah. medical license revoked as well as anything that will refer back for you to look up stupid McLiar pants name. <laughs> and by the way, paper retracted. Right. So the 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 actual. Uh, evidence and everything was shown to be highly, highly fraudulent. As a result of a large group of people who were motivated in by fear as a result of this uh, con artist teachings, 2015, the MMR vaccine made headlines when there was an outbreak of measles in California at Disneyland. And it was thought that (laughs) a whole at that point, People were stepping back and saying, you know, a bunch of people are exploiting the religious exemption clause and getting leaders of affirmation from church leaders or pop-up churches willing to help parents skirt vaccine requirements. So if you remember back in the days when marijuana was illegal, there were all these Mm -hmm. pop-up medical clinics that were like, oh, we can definitely find a reason. So these are churches performing that same function for religious exemption. (laughs) so not and i guess it doesn't take much to become a preacher and establish a church like you you don't need much to register a church as proof i am a licensed minister (laughs) we've been doing this for now eight seasons and you have yet to bless me so i'm wondering what the hell is up with that i'm santosh i've explained this already there's a lot of rains down in africa that i'm still working on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, you have to bless all of them. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's a large continent. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's going to take a lot. You're on the list. It's going to take <laughs> a lot to tear me away to you. All right. So you won't bless me, but all of these pop-up churches and those kind of things all of a sudden have authority. So I, I don't think it was really envisioned that churches would just pop up like this in order to provide these exemptions. The end result of this is that Hmm. California uh, just removed the religious exemption thing. Sure. That's it. They just said, okay, you know what? Yeah. Too much abuse, no more religious exemptions. Yeah. This is why we can't have nice things. Uh, (laughs) Six other states followed. A researcher, Dr. Omer, and mm-hmm. along with his team, looked at the data before and after California removed its religious exemptions. And I will link to that paper in the further reading section of the show notes. 
Uh, and okay. largely what they found is that vaccine non vaccine non-compliance mm -hmm. pretty much stayed the same. There was a brief dip in, okay. you know, where people, you know, once you removed all the excuses, you did see vaccination rates go up briefly. And then it kind of came back down to the previous level. And it turned okay. out that the group of people who would have exploited the religious exemption community just found other loopholes. So Got homeschooling it. or medical exemptions or a whole bunch of other ways. Uh, sure. So there does need to be some sort of safety valve. Uh, the arguments now currently being tossed around would be, what does that look like? If you leave the religious exemption or whatever other exemptions in place, how do you make it more difficult or essentially more bureaucratic so only those who really have those convictions will sit through all of these paperwork hoops, et cetera? Yeah, so basically make sure that it's, you know, it's some work. It takes some work in order to get this exemption that you just can't sign like a single piece of paper and be done. Let's talk now about what exactly the religious object to. As I said, okay. it's a non-controversial episode, right? <laughs> because this isn't the type of exemption that people are seeking that's kind of legal, right? That you're not allowed to tell me what to do. I this don't is... want to is not a valid reason. Right. That, exactly. that doesn't mean there aren't. <laughs> yeah. But that's what, you know, people who resist the vaccine mandates are being asked to provide. A reason other than I don't want to. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So over here now, even talking about you know, I'm against vaccines, but there's no such thing as really, as far as we know, like anti-vaccination in a religious script. So you're, you're going to talk about like the root of the belief. Yeah. Right. Or at least, and again, without actually speaking for every religious person, the vast majority of religious exemptions, what the objection being claimed is, is what we're going to talk about. All three available vaccines and by all three available, I mean, the uh, ones here in America, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and presumably elsewhere, the Sinovax, uh, AstraZeneca, Novavax, sure. Novavax uh -huh. okay. um, were tested on cells derived from aborted fetuses. Sure. Okay. So fetal the, stem cells. Right. The, mm -hmm. And we'll, we're going to talk about that in more detail because I think that's it's very casually tossed around, but nobody really understands what the context of that actually means like what yeah. what are you thinking of like a row of matrix style babies in tubes because <laughs> well that is an amazingly dystopian picture yeah and it's not 100 how... not true yeah, yeah. <laughs> not quite how it works but yeah. the problem that say for example uh catholic bishops uh put forward is that johnson and johnson is still using these cells in production to grow the actual vaccines whereas Pfizer and Moderna are not. It's a totally different vaccine class. Technology, right. Uh -huh. So yeah. the majority of requests asking for religious exemptions are cited the use of fetal cell lines in the development of vaccines. Somewhere along the way, yeah. Here's one of the problems that I think a lot of people are unaware of, and a hospital made very good example about this. One hospital system said people who were requesting this for the use of fetal cell lines the hospital was trying to educate its employees that that practice uses cells grown in labs to test many new vaccines and drugs, including common ones. So they said, if you are going to request a religious exemption based on fetal cell lines, the use of fetal cell lines in your opposition to abortion, right. we want to we want a signed attestation that you truthfully acknowledge and affirm that you also don't use some of the following medications which are developed using that exact same process. Uh, okay. These are okay. such rare and exotic medications as Tylenol, Albuterol, Aspirin, Motrin, Pepto-Bismol, Tums, okay. Lipitor, <laughs> Senecot, Motrin, oh, Maalox, Exlax, Ma okay, Benadryl, yeah, uh -huh. Sudafed, Claritin, Prilosec, Zoloft, and Preparation H. Uh, <laughs> so basically, among the most 
common maladies among humankind, pain, allergies, congestion, and colds, uh, constipation was there, like things that happen to everybody pretty much all the time. You can't use these medications. If you, if you genuinely believe what you believe and you want to avoid the, you know, the use of stem cells in the development of any of the stuff that you use. So the employees were asked to basically say, all right, I understand that all of these are made using that exact same process I am objecting to in the vaccine development. And mm-hmm. therefore, I also will not use those medications. This sure. is obviously on the honor system with no practical way to enforce it. Yeah. But the point <laughs> is to, again, educate staff who might have requested the exemption without understanding the full scope of how they're used in testing and development. Yeah. And we're hoping that that if you're talking about Christian side of things and Christian scientist and that kind of thing, we're we're hoping that that whole "thou shalt not lie" bit kicks in as well. <laughs> well, the Christian here. scientists again aren't even in this discussion because they have said from the outright, "Nope, we've seen modern oh, medicine and we want nothing to do with it." Nothing, nothing to do. Okay, so this is outside of that community. All right, got it, got it's it. Just got your it. casual, uh, yeah. Catholic yeah. or Jewish person or Muslim or Hindu or Zoroastrian or whatever. Sure, sure. So the myriad of people who have an objection to using fetal stem cells in the development of any kind of medical technology. And I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of those have a pretty good taboo against, you know, signing fraudulent documents. So yeah, I, so you know, the fetal you, you, cell, let, let's, yeah. so let's talk about this row of matrix style baby batteries that, <laughs> that are <used>. doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The fetal cell lines currently used are thousands of generations removed from the original tissue where the cells were derived from. And I'm going to talk about where those came from too. We're going superhero origin story. Folks. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, this is kind of going to be a, well, it's going to be like a little bit of a Henrietta Lacks kind of story, right? Oh, she Gosh. shows up. Don't worry. Yeah, but yeah. Let's, uh, so... let's bring out our, our vaccine Avengers. Varicella, uh, no, rubella. That's the R in the MMR. Hepatitis <laughs> okay. A, rabies, uh-huh. and COVID-19, at least the Johnson Johnson U.S. approved, are all made by growing the virus in a fetal cell. All of these, except the COVID-19 vaccine, are made using fibroblast cells. Uh, The COVID-19 vaccine from Johnson & Johnson is made using fetal retinal cells. So let's talk about the difference. Fibroblast cells. Santosh, what are they? What do they do? They sound (laughs) exciting. Yeah, Dangerous, baby? <laughs> not, not at all. No, no, no. Fibroblasts are the progenital cells which make a lot of the fibrous connective type tissue. And actually, I've used fibroblasts in my own research as a cell layer. That's the tissue culture that I usually use when I'm culturing toxoplasma. And I use a different one. Mine, <laughs> you're actually going to love this. The ones that I purchase are uh, human foreskin fibroblasts. So <laughs> we use <laughs> when when there is a circumcision. Man, researchers always get shafted. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. We do. But you know, you know why? It's because we... they can't keep their head on straight. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, first of all, hold on. Let me give you a tip. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're not able to purchase from ATCC, for instance, the big, um, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, repository for cell lines that we have here, then often, you know, you can split these cells off from, you know, somebody else who's propagating them. But yeah, fibroblasts, uh, commonly they're in the skin. They're that, you know, the interconnected fibrous layer. And the beautiful thing about them is they're not fully immortal, but they will last several generations. You can lay them down in a layer on the bottom of a flask 
okay, and cover them with nutritional media. And what they will do is they will grow until they are um, just in contact with one another. And then they won't form multiple layers. They'll form a single layer. We'll call it a monolayer. And when you do that, you can infect them, you can manipulate them, and you're able to very, very easily perform like microscopy on the resulting effect, whatever you want to see, because you have a single layer of cells and that's very, very good to view under a microscope. So, and, and you really can, you can propagate them for 15, 16, sometimes 20, that 25 generations before they, you know, they get old and sick enough to where they, um, they don't support your experiments anymore. Yeah, but once they're, once they're they really get to 25, fun. it's time for them to move out. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing you need is fiberglass that can rent a car. It yeah, absolutely. But really, the nice thing is that you know you can get your uh, original progenitor cells, and you can grow them up. You can split them off, and you can store them in liquid nitrogen for just ages and ages. And you know, go get a new line when you need it. Um, you know, by by going back into your liquid nitrogen stock. So they they're very hardy. They keep for a long time. And universally, they work well for all different types of experiments, whether it's infection or genetics or whatever you want. So the fetal fibroblast cells that are being used to grow all these vaccine viruses were first obtained from two electively terminated pregnancies from the early 1960s. Yep. Way back when. The same as you were, as you were talking about, Santosh, with the progenitor cells have mm -hmm. continued to be used to split off and grow additional ones in a lab and are still used to make vaccines today. No further sources of fetal cells are needed to make any of the vaccines I mentioned. That's it. Yes. That You're still working off just these original two 1960 cell lines. So if anything, those two aborted fetals, uh, yeah, those two aborted fetuses have gone on to live longer lives than the theoretical children they would have gone on to become. <laughs> and their contributions have saved countless numbers of lives right up through the present day. Yes, yes. And, you know, again, and, and I don't believe that I have to say this, Josh, but it's that's the age that we live in. These weren't forced abortions. You know, nobody was paid to do these abortions or anything like this. These were, you know, children, uh, uh, fetuses that needed to be aborted for one reason or another. I, I think the, the identities are very strictly, you know, found. Very, let's, do, uh, let's do an even yeah. deeper dive. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Why fetal cells? All right. So let's yeah. say you accept the fact, fine, all these vaccines are made from fibroblasts, which are not part of any organ required for somebody to live. Uh, you know, they, to, to live a quality of life, yes, but taking fibroblasts yeah. <laughs> away from someone is not going to kill them, like taking away a heart or significantly sure. impact them like a kidney, things like that. Um, right. So the reasons fetal cells were originally used included viruses need cells to grow and they tend to grow mm -hmm. better in cells from humans than animals because they infect humans. And by the way, we're working by and large with human viruses, right? In medicine, if you're a veterinary scientist and you need to work on, you know, a dog distemper virus or bacteria, then you should be using dog cells. Almost all cells die after they've divided a certain number of times. This number mm -hmm. is known as the Hayflick limit. I've got a really cool story about that. Remind <laughs> me about it. For okay. most cell lines, including fetal cells, it's around 50 divisions. But okay. yep. mm -hmm. because feed, it's like how many times can you fold a piece of paper in half before you can't yeah, do yeah, it anymore? Before, and it's like, yeah, exactly. it's like eight, yeah. eight, 12, I don't know unless you're insanely strong. Uh, but yeah, because yeah. fetal cells have not divided as many times as other cell types, they can be used for longer. And because you can maintain cells at very low temperatures, like liquid nitrogen, you can mm -hmm. keep using the same fetal cell lines for years. Now, yeah. the retinal cells used to make the COVID-19 vaccine in Johnson & Johnson came from a different line. That was a terminated fetus in 1985, and it has okay. been... In in use for growing adenovirus-based vaccines since right. the late 1990s. 
I hear all of you clamoring, well, wait a minute. Why do we have a different cell line with an adenovirus-based vaccine? What is an adenovirus? Well, <laughs> Santos, you're the infectious disease doc, so I'll let you explain yeah. the virus. But I'll say the vaccine cannot replicate when administered to people or vac- adenovirus vaccines can't replicate when administered to people. So they have to be produced in cells that allow large quantities of it to be made. And this particular cell line is adapted to enable that production. So what's an adenovirus? Yeah, adenovirus is most commonly associated with childhood diseases like pink eye. All right. So when you have the, you know, conjunctivitis that goes around the entire classroom because kids are touching their own eyes and then they touch something else and then the other kid touches that and touches their own eye, you have a big pool party. Everyone gets pink eye. <laughs> That's adenovirus. It can also cause something that looks almost like mono. You get pharyngitis, um, often with pink eye and fevers and the, uh, the other aside from respiratory and upper respiratory stuff that it can cause the other group of diseases that adenovirus commonly 40 and 41 will cause is acute gastroenteritis. So stomach flu. And these are abundant during the summertime. So all those summer colds that your kids bring home, uh, little Petri dishes, <laughs> and then the diarrhea, diarrheal illnesses that they have, a lot of those are adenoviruses. They replicate really, really quick. They're you know very contagious in their natural form. And that makes them an excellent kind of vehicle or vector for anything that you want to deliver if you kind of engineer them to you know have the properties that you want and take away the properties you don't want even though fetal cells are used to grow vaccine viruses vaccines do not contain these cells it's it's like the home that they grow up in and then they leave it there is no part of it attached to them Uh, nor are there pieces of dna that are recognizable as human dna so 100 true yeah if you need further reassurance when viruses grow in cells the cells are ultimately killed because in most cases, the new virus has to burst forth from the cell to be released. Yes. Once yeah, they the, call it the lytic cycle. Mm-hmm. Once the vaccine virus is grown, so the defanged virus that now has <laughs> the good vaccine in, hey, it's still October. Let me have that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> once the vaccine virus is grown, it's purified. So all the cellular debris and reagents used to make it are removed. Right. During this process of purification, any remaining cellular DNA, which there shouldn't be anyway, is still is still broken down. I hear you still asking, okay, but I need to know more. I, w- I want to know everything up until the name favorite color and <laughs> you know first pet of the woman who chose to create these cell lines sure who who basically donated the the um the products of conception after the the abortion sure let's go back to the hay flick limit that's a really good sci-fi yeah. <laughs> sounding concept isn't it? the cells yeah, can't yeah. divide past the hay flick limit <laughs> yeah it sounds like something's going to explode after the hay flick limit or you're going to bust into time travel or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you'll you'll break out of the space-time curriculum. Once we go faster than 88 miles per hour, we pass the Hayflick limit, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I fully expect you to go into Doc Brown mode sometime during your life. I, I don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> So that's just yeah. you're waiting every day for me to wake up and be like, come on, Santosh, we got to get yeah. back. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to have the same question for you that I had to Doc Brown. What's the rush? You have a time machine. <laughs> yeah. Look at him. He's still old. He not have a heart attack tomorrow. It doesn't matter if it's in the early 1800s or in the yeah. you know 2000 and whatevers. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's 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 very fair. As far as he's concerned, his time is limited. <laughs> so let's talk about the Hayflick limit and the secret origins of the vaccine fetal cell lines. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, uh, not so secret, I suppose. But yeah, go for it. Did you know about them? 
No, 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 no. I, I rest my case. <laughs> Go for it. As part of the Wistar Institute, Dr. Okay. Koprowski uh, was trying to reinvent the research department. So Leonard Hayflick was invited to join the team based on his expertise in cell culture, whereas Koprowski was a polio researcher. The first okay. polio virus had been successfully grown in cell culture by three gentlemen, Frederick Robbins, Thomas Weller, and John Enders, in mm -hmm. uh, the late 1940s. So Koprowski wanted a scientist who could make enough cells, not just for his own lab, but to provide out to other researchers. Okay. But Hayflick wasn't happy on just creating limited supplies to send to other labs through Amazon Prime. <laughs> no, sir. Well, uh, yeah, okay. In 1958, and don't tell mm -hmm. me that Amazon doesn't have a time machine. <laughs> you better believe yeah, that that's yeah. how they're making those same-day deliveries. In 1958, yeah, yeah. <laughs> after settling into his new lab, Hayflick became focused on creating cell lines that could grow continuously, mm -hmm. uh, such as the famous and versatile HeLa cells. The technical name or, or, you know, one of the names that you'd say is you'd, you're trying to immortalize the cells. You're, you're trying to get them to be able to divide. As long as they have nutrition, they're able to divide out into daughter cells where you have a clonal line that goes down and down. You now, want your cells to go full Wolverine or Deadpool yeah, and be able yeah. to just regenerate continuously. Right, right. Now, we have learned that, you know, the cells do change and stuff over time, but immortalization isn't, it doesn't happen all the time very easily. In the case of Henrietta Lacks, in the case of HeLa, these were cancer cells that had kind of lost their, what we call their checkpoints that allowed them to actually say, oh, you know what, I shouldn't divide anymore past this. That's what happens so, when you pass the Hayflick limit, Santosh. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So they had already been immortal when they were grown originally in the, in the Petri dish. So now you're trying to confer that same type of property on other types of cells that you want to keep going for a long, long, long time. Such as non-cancerous cells. Yes. And the and part of the reason for that is they didn't know whether or not viruses could cause cancer. Nobody wants to risk giving a vaccine based on viruses that could transmit a cancer with, you know, it make. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In the cure worse than the disease. Yes, absolutely. So when using non-cancerous cells, choices were limited. Some researchers were using monkey kidney cells from monkey mm -hmm. butlers or monkeys who were kidnapped and woke up in a bathtub full of ice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, no, but okay, fine. And <laughs> others would use cells from freshly isolated rodent tissues, like Santosh, who kidnaps mice and they wake up in a bathtub what, full of what ice. What are you doing? No, <laughs> stop that. <laughs> uh, These, okay. But the thing is, monkey and rodent cells didn't grow as well in the lab. And so they have to be prepared fresh each time they were needed by sacrificing lab animals, which yeah. if you're trying to, you know, limit the destruction of life, 
not a good route to go. There is also the idea that you'd like your experiments to have as few variables as possible between them. So you'd like to keep them really consistent. Well, one monkey kidney is not the same as, you know, the other monkey kidney over here. So the behavior of your vaccine or your viruses or anything could change because your experiment isn't standardized. So if you have a single cell line that's being propagated, that's much more desirable than having to harvest, you know, organs to make a fresh culture every time. So Hayflick was aware that over at Berkeley, scientists had used cells from human placentas to create cell lines. So Mm -hmm. when his wife gave birth to their daughter, Hayflick took some of these cells to try growing them in the lab. And these cells called wish cells, because finally (laughs) we get a scientist who's good at naming stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Were later contaminated by the Gila cell line. Oh, (laughs) there you go. Okay. So someone mixed flasks. Yeah. This is a scientific horror movie. You know, (laughs) Gila passes the Hayflick limit and becomes an immortal, ever-growing, monstrous cancer cell. Yeah, yeah. Who is ultimately tamed to the good of mankind, mm-hmm. but along the way destroys wishes and hopes of others <laughs> who had yet to achieve the Hayflick limit. All right, Netflix, <laughs> I'm ready. Yep, uh, it's, that's 20% to Dr. Josh whenever you get uh, it. Absolutely. So Hayflick collaborated with a surgeon over at the University of Pennsylvania, a Robert Ravdin to Mm -hmm. get several hundred different tumor samples in a series of experiments designed to answer the question of, can viruses cause cancer? Because he's like, that is the last time I have my wishes destroyed by a cancer. And I want to know, can viruses be transmitted that way? Or can cancers? So his goal was to isolate the broth used to grow tumor cells in the lab, Mm -hmm. then incubate it with non-cancerous cells and see if they were infected. Yeah. So you take that's we call it the supernatant, right? So you're you usually use a centrifuge or something like that because the cells themselves are heavy. So they drop to the bottom and then you have what we call the soup or the supernatant, the liquid media that's on top. And if there are viral particles suspended in there, they're not heavy enough to drop in the centrifuge with the rest of the cells, they'll, they'll actually stay in the the liquid and suspended in there. So now you basically have a way to keep, if there are any viruses in that soup, you just take that and you put that onto fresh cells and see if the cells start to die. So, so he set off on the series of experiments because he was worried that cells from, you know, people or monkeys might contain cancer causing viruses that would introduce confounds into his results. Right. However, he said, all right, a fetus in the womb is protected from outside pathogens. Mm-hmm. So if I can get fetal cell lines, that would offer the cleanest, uh, from a disease standpoint, source of cells for the other half of his experiment. And he was not the right. first to use fetal cells. And this wasn't you know, very widespread as federal and state law varied. But there were times when in the medical community, abortions were deemed necessary for some of the same reasons that they're deemed necessary today. And as with the tumor samples, the aborted fetuses would be otherwise discarded as medical waste. So he was able to obtain some of these and successfully isolate and grow cells. Okay. Uh, They then went on to show through their experiments that A lot of this was based in the nucleus, how many times it could divide, not the cytoplasm, wasn't based on the age of the person, but on the type of cell. Mm -hmm. And following the success of the polio vaccine program, everybody was trying to create diseases caused by viruses. Uh, Uh, (laughs) Okay, cool. So as, as he is proving that viruses or the vast majority of viruses don't transmit cancer, Uh, certainly not the ones they were studying at the time, tragedy Mm -hmm. strikes, not him, but the monkey kidney cells in which the Salk and Sabin polio vaccines had been grown. Okay. Was contaminated with a cancer causing virus of monkeys called SV40, simian virus 40. Simian virus 40. Mm -hmm. Which meant that those could no longer be used. You lost a huge amount of production and supply chain 
in right. polio vaccine. And this is at a time when not everybody was vaccinated yet. Christian scientists lobbying. There was Johnson versus Massachusetts, people being fined $5 up and down. So they had to throw out this whole batch because they didn't know whether or not the virus caused cancer in people. As it turns out, it doesn't. Uh, I do want to show this as kind of an illustration of how careful we are and how much you know, in terms of science and production when it comes to vaccines, where we we go for the protection of the people getting the vaccine, even in terms of overkill. As you said, why should SV40 cause cancer in humans? It really shouldn't. It was a simian-specific virus, and we now know that it, it does not. But when the answer is, I don't know, then our response was, nope, nix that batch and start fresh. So, and, and this is true kind of across the board with vaccine science and vaccine production. So Hayflick, Kaprowski, and Plotkin realized that as long as viral vaccines were being grown in animal cells, there was always going to be a potential for contamination by animal viruses or viruses that had yet to be identified. So again, they came back to fetal cells, which were less likely to have been exposed to viruses. Mm -hmm. And they began researching the use of fetal cells as growth factories for vaccine viruses. This is the origin of why fetal cells were chosen. You know, before we even get to where they obtained, like, why did they decide to use those lines? That's why. They're not animal cell lines, so we don't have to worry about being those contaminations. And they are protected, presumably, again, from the outside world, and therefore less likely to have any kind of viral contamination. Yeah, it's just a logical kind of scientific flow of thought that led us over here. And the final thing genuinely was an ethical question, meaning that you don't ever want to use this as, okay, I, I would like that fetal cell line, so we're going to find a way to get you know this particular fetus aborted or something like that. No, no, no. We know that a lot of the time termination is very important actually to save the life of mom, you know, baby's not viable, any of those kind of things like that. And so this is a, for lack of a better word, fertile. It's, it's a, it's a, kind of a wellspring of resources that otherwise, honestly, Josh, would just be like tossed, would just be thrown. Originally, so the original strain of cells that Hayflick was working with, some 20 odd lines, were lost due to freezer failure. Right. Um, Yeah. And this happens from time to time, right? Power outage. They need to be kept at minus 80 if you're going to keep them for any extended period of time, minus 80 degrees. Get much above minus 60 or minus 50 and they'll start to thaw and die. Luckily, he had already published the experiments he had completed on them, including his recipe for how to make it. And he was very good at culturing. So he saw this as an opportunity to create a new strain for vaccine manufacture that would be considered a gold standard. So... To this end, he sought a fetus that came from a relatively healthy woman, one who didn't have cancers or any genetically based diseases that could theoretically be transmitted to future vaccine recipients. So he needed a cell line free of, you know, all disease that would be available in such large quantities that manufacturers would never run out of the supply. Once again, from fetal progenitor type of lines, these are not completely pluripotent, Josh, but they're you know, they're, they're very young cells and you can propagate them for a very, very, very long time without them quote unquote going bad. By the time he finally set out to replace his supply following the freezer incident, he was collaborating with a Swedish scientist, great name, yeah. Svengard. <laughs> it's a real name. I just, Didn't make it up. No, no, no. I just, I, Oh God, we're gonna lose all of our Scandinavian thing. I'm just, I can't get away from the Muppet because <laughs> you started off with Muppets and then like a like a scientist going to get the shells, get to put the vaccine in the shells. Well, Svengard was his supplier of the necessary yeah. tissue. That is where the first fetal cell line came from. The Swedish scientist Svengard. The cell line ultimately used for production was named WI38. 
from a woman who had several young children and a husband who was often out of town for his job. She indicated Mm -hmm. that although she was very healthy, when he was home, he drank and had been in prison. Otherwise, they had no health history. All of this is publicly available record. I bet you didn't think we'd learn that much, did you? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I really thought we were going to start off with kind of like anonymized, you know, donations and that kind of a thing. But no, it's it's very frank, you know, kind of where these came from. Oh, stop it. (laughs) So WI-38 cells were grown in these, you know, ampules and split by pouring. When one tube filled up, you pour some into a second tube and you let that fill up and so on and so forth. And this was shared with researchers around the world and used to develop vaccines against polio, rubella, and rabies. Also used is public health labs in England and Wales, as well as sent to WHO labs on four continents for use in detecting disease in hospitalized wait, wait, patients. Wait, what labs? WHO labs. What? what? Where labs? <laughs> Why labs? <laughs> Why not labs? labs? <laughs> All right. WHO labs, WHO, World Health Organization. <laughs> Eventually... <laughs> researchers at the British Medical Council (laughs) prepared cells from a second (laughs) aborted fetus. Mm -hmm. This second cell line was named MRC5. And ultimately, the rubella vaccine and one rabies vaccine were made using WI-38 cells. But due to concerns around supply issues during the 70s when other vaccines were being developed, hepatitis A Chicken pox and the original shingles vaccine were made using MRC5. Both cell lines have been extensively characterized and tested and continue to be used to produce all the vaccines. So (laughs) that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to sources for further reading. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Mm -hmm. Santosh and friends. (laughs) And until next time, as always, wash your hands. Josh, wait, wait. Before you do the sign-off, may I do a mini science just the tip? Because the Nobel Prizes have been very recently awarded. Stop the presses! Is that okay? Breaking news. <laughs> so just very, very briefly, please go to NobelPrize.org and look up this year's Nobel Prize in Medicine because it's super cool. Um, Dr. David Julius and Artem Pataputian, <laughs> who have split the prize and they have made wonderful contributions in the fields of discovering how we perceive the world. So actually discovering receptors for touch and heat. And Josh, I think you'll love this. What do you think the model was for figuring out how we perceived heat? What did what did Dr. Julius, David Julius do in the 1990s? Put his hand on a hot tin roof? No, no, no. He used capsaicin. Oh. Yeah. So he actually, in order to find TRPV1, the little receptor that actually detects heat, the the protein that actually starts the signaling that says, oh, that's hot and that's painful, uh, he used a model with uh, chili peppers, capsaicin. So it it was... It was a really cool discovery. So yes, how we perceive the world. Nobel Prize 2021. Yay! And until next time, as always, stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shot, and once you've done all that, find a country that's open and happy travels. (laughs) Bye, everybody. up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.comslash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.